It's mailbag time here at the Fenway Rundown. I'm Chris Cotillo, your host. You're listening to Mass Lives Red Sox and Baseball Podcast. We went back to the reader question well this week. We asked Twitter to submit your questions for me. We have the wonderful uh, producer of the show, Joey Alberti, who asked me some of the questions that you guys asked. Uh, some really good questions, obviously, you know, still talking about the fallout of Xander Bogart's departure, what the Red Sox are going to do next at shortstop. Uh, even my favorite chain restaurant around Fenway Park, my favorite uh, hotel chain, which is you know two easy answers in my mind. We'll get to those. So um, appreciate all the questions. Uh, obviously, uh, a lot to talk about. So we'll get right to it. And uh, thanks to Joey for coming on and flipping the script to me a little bit. All right, it's time to flip things around. We did this a couple months ago. It was really fun. So uh, we'll welcome Joey Alberti back to the show. And uh, he has your mailbag questions. It was uh, kind of a ton. We we didn't put this up very early. It was late on uh, Wednesday night. We're recording for me early on Thursday morning at 1130 a.m. It's been a long month. And uh, so, Joey, take it away. Hit me with uh, whatever the people want to know. Yeah, there was definitely more questions than last time, which is always a positive thing. People seem to fan, have- fan base is fired up. Yeah. And as always, I like to start with the first question that was asked, which was, Trey Waka, and he said, are the Red Sox more likely to go after a shortstop or just rearrange the infield and go after some outfielders? Yeah, that's kind of the the big question facing the team right now. I think they are open to a lot of things. Um, You know, Trevor Story and Kike Hernandez kind of give them in this plan B post Bogart world, they kind of give them flexibility. You know, they can move Story to shortstop. They can move Kike theoretically to second base. Um, I just kind of look at the options that are out there and, and unless they go sign Dansby Swanson, I'm sure we'll talk about him a little bit. There's not really that many shortstops that are available. Um, you know, we've seen now Correa off the board, obviously Trey Turner, Bogarts were off the board. Um, I think there is probably, you know, if you want to add an impact player, you probably can go get an outfielder, whether that be, you know, Brian Reynolds or maybe one of those young outfielders, the Diamondbacks are trying to move or, you know, maybe you go sign Michael Conforto, who missed last year. He's a bit of a risk. But, you know, there are some of those guys available, I think. Um, to me, it's not, you know, more likely either way. I just think that um, if you look at how the market's developing, you know, they add a center fielder, move Kike to second, move Story to short, and that's kind of the alignment. They're definitely open to that, and I think that's pretty interesting. So, um, you know, they, they don't want to be in this situation, but they do have their options. It's not like they have to go sign somebody. Another option, they go sign, you know, Gene Segura to play second base, put him next to Story, keep Kike in center. Um, you know, maybe you go and, and get some young shortstop. I, I kind of think, you know, they probably, you know, Bogarts was a special case. To me, it doesn't seem like they're really interested in, you know, signing or, or trading for a controllable long-term shortstop just because they have Marcelo Meyer coming up in a couple of years. Um, and so they might be looking for more of a stop gap there. As I said, a lot of options on the table. I know they're considering things. They, they talked about, you know, a bunch of different variations of what they could do even before Bogarts departed. We heard that they were talking to the Brewers back then about Colton Wong before he was traded to Seattle to play second base, and then they could have moved story to short. So um, it's not going to be, you know, the setup they have now, which would probably be story at short, Kike in center. And our friend of the show, Christian Arroyo, at second. I do think they're going to add some, uh, make some moves, add some pieces, and you know they still have time to do so. Well, good enough. We have two questions that go directly off of what you just said. We'll perfect. We didn't plan it that way. <laughs> we'll start with the Trevor Story aspect of it, and this one comes from Bonnie Gagnon, saying, "Are the Red Sox concerned about Story and his arm? Should he be the full-time shortstop?" 
You know, Bloom addressed this earlier this week after Kenley Jansen's press conference and said that they're not, you know, really concerned about it just because his range pretty much makes up for that. You know, I think it's, you know, he's a guy that gets to every ball. We saw that at second base, seen that at shortstop throughout his career in Colorado as a pretty good defender. So they think the range is good enough where, you know, if there is a tick, you know, slower on the arm, maybe those kind of things cancel each other out. I think in the minds of Bloom and, and the decision makers, it's a little bit overblown. That being said, you know, his throwing arm was a concern last year in the free agent market for teams. You know, teams, um, we saw the other shortstops come off the board, whether it be, you know, Seager or Semyon, who ended up being a second baseman in Texas, or um, Carlos Correa, first version of him going through free agency. Those guys came off the board, and no team was, at the end of the day, um, no team signed Trevor Story to be their shortstop. The Red Sox had to get creative and do that um, and, you know, have him end up at second base. I, I think – you know, obviously, you know, Bloom or, or Alex Gora, whoever is not going to come out and say, no, his, his arm's screwed up and we're afraid of it. You know, they have to say that it works. But I think it, it made a high made a good point the other day with the range and, and all that type of stuff. The other thing I'd say on that and was talking to somebody about this yesterday. You know, you look at these deals, these shortstops are getting, whether it be, you know, Seager last year, 10 for 325, Bogart's 11 for 280. Turner 11 for 300, Correa 13 for 350, whatever Swanson's going to get. And like when you look at all these deals, understanding that Story played second base last year, six for 140 looks like a pretty good deal for the Red Sox. I know he didn't have an amazing year. I know he was hurt. You know, I know some of the numbers were down and there was an adjustment period. We've covered that you know, ad nauseum for sure. But six for 140 looks like a really palatable deal. And if he has a good year, you know, in 2023, I think people are going to start recognizing that. So, um, you know, I know there's that conspiracy theory that they wanted him to be the shortstop all along. I don't know how much I subscribe to that. I do think they did want Bogarts, even if their actions didn't necessarily show it early on. That being said, you know, they have Story now as kind of one of the centerpieces of this team. Um, he's a very talented player. I think he's going to take a step forward in year two and very well could be at shortstop. The most or the most frequent people we heard in the Twitter mentions of potential shortstop replacements for Xander were Dansby Swanson, Valdez, and then trade targets. But who's this? Um, this, I, it's a bunch of random numbers, the Twitter handle. So of I course, can't, they always are. Yeah. Um, who do you think will replace Sander Bogarts? Yeah, I mean, the Emmanuel Valdez rumor is just objectively not true. I don't think he's even played shortstop in the minors, so he's not going to be. Uh, in the mix. I think he could be in the mix for a utility job, you know, at some point during the year, just because, you know, he's at triple A. So once you're there, you're already knocking on the door, but as an opening day starter, I, I don't think that they're envisioning that at all. Um, you know, obviously that rumor has been out there for some reason in the last few days. It's something that we didn't even ask Kyle Bloom about because, you know, so many people debunked and disputed it early on. So, um, you know, I think that that's, that, that one probably, um, or definitely, you know, not going to happen. And, Happy to eat my words on here or any other platform if it does come April. Um, Dansby Swanson's interesting just because, you know, he is the last guy available. I do think that the market has gone to a place where you see Correa 13 for 350, like I said, and Bogart's deal and Turner's deal. Dansby Swanson's going to get probably a lot more than he really is worth. You know, I think people all looked at him as, you know, the, the, the fourth best of the four shortstops available. Obviously, in terms of guaranteed money so far, it's gone Correa, Turner, and then Bogarts, which I think is is pretty fair. And obviously, Bogarts still getting 11 years. I don't think Swanson's going to get 
you know, that many years, but I do think a team's going to be paying a lot for him. And you now have to look at all the teams that lost out, you know, on the other guys, the Cubs are a team that wanted to be involved in the shortstop market. Um, I think they're a real threat to Lance Swanson, the Braves, his team, his hometown team. He grew up rooting for them, grew up in the area and obviously has played for them the last few years. They're a threat. You know, the Dodgers, I think, can never be discounted in these situations. And the Twins, you know, we're making kind of the biggest offers in franchise history to Correa. Maybe they pivot with that money to Swanson. So um, they have a there's a lot of teams that I think are going to be more motivated than the Red Sox just because at a certain point, you know, this market has gotten to a price range where they're just not comfortable with. We saw that if they're not comfortable with the huge overpay for a guy who's been on the team for 10 years and has been the perfect citizen, it kind of makes me doubt that they would be, you know, all in on, um, you know, doing that for a player who they don't know as well in Swanson. So, and probably a lesser player, you know, across the board. Um, I don't think it can be completely ruled out uh, just because, you know, they're, if, if a deal, you know, makes sense, if they can get him maybe on a, high AAV short deal. I don't know if he's willing to take that. Maybe they do it. You know, the fact that he's still out there means, you know, he's going to have his options obviously with all the other losers. So I don't know. I think they're probably talking to him. Um, if you were to ask me three or four days ago, I would have said, I thought Correa was more likely than Swanson. Um, but you know, obviously that didn't end up happening. It's unclear if they actually made a real push. And, um, yeah, I would say, you know, more likely it's, it's story as a starting shortstop than anybody else, but you know, the field, you know, is still possible. There are trade candidates out there. We just haven't seen that market develop quite yet. Pac-Man 072286 asked, how do you personally feel about the Yoshida signing? Uh, you know, I have been saying for the last week that, uh, and by the time this podcast goes up today, he will be introduced at Fenway Park at a press conference, 4 p.m. today, Thursday. Um, we got kind of more answers on what the plan for him is. I was really starting to dig in on him uh, last Wednesday when they signed him. They signed him about four o'clock Pacific. We were in San Diego and uh, by nine o'clock Bogarts was a Padre and everything kind of uh, went to hell. So um, I was not able to dig on Yoshida as much as I would have liked to if he was the biggest move. You know, there are the reports out there that the Red Sox overpaid compared to what other teams uh, were willing to offer. I think that's kind of interesting because, you know, there's two ways you can look at that. You know, either these teams are looking to rip the Red Sox or looking to, you know, rip a team for a move uh, that they didn't make, whatever, uh, or, you know, there's truth to it. You know, there's 10 evaluators that talked to ESPN's Kylie McDaniel and some that talked to the athletics, Keith law. They said they paid more than the Red Sox paid more than double than they would have for Yoshida. Um, they, you know, they were shocked by the deal. They had no words for the deal. The fact that it was something that got done within 24 hours of him being posted, I think lends some credence to that because he didn't really look around the market and he just saw the Red Sox offer and was like, yep, I'm taking that. Um, again, we'll get more in, in, info and more answers on why exactly, you know, he wanted to come to Boston today, but, um, you know, it's one, it's, it's kind of the one time in four, three or four years that Heimblum has been criticized for overpaying. Uh, so we're always talking and the narrative is that he's so cheap. He's so cheap, so cheap. Now it's kind of going the other way where he's now overpaying for a guy, according to the industry. Um, you know, that to me, if that is the case, then the Red Sox really like this guy and they decided to take a big risk. And when you have money to spend and you have holes to fill, sometimes you have to do that. So I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I know everything about him or I've watched the highlight tape. I know there's you know, quotes that he's the Japanese one Soto. And now there's a lot of quotes, the Red Sox greatly overpaid. Um, you know, with these guys, it's tough. You never know about the transition, right? Last year, 
everybody in Boston thought Seiya Suzuki would have been the absolute savior and would have been perfect. You know, he would have been a good fit on the roster, but you know, the Red Sox uh, didn't do it. They did this one and um, we'll see where he fits in to me with the profile. I think he does get more at bats on at DH than left field, just the way, you know, it seems to be coming together right now, but obviously, you know, a lot of holes to fill, a lot of moves left to make. So, um, you know, there's the, the time, the time will tell on that, but um, it, it's, it's, to kind of be an exciting thing to follow early in the season because he's probably going to be the leadoff hitter. He's probably going to be playing a lot. The Red Sox made a big investment. I mean, 18 million a year. He's going to be one of the highest paid players on the roster behind, you know, sale and probably, um, I'm not sure exactly, you know, who else is going to be in that mix, obviously sale and story and some of these other guys. So, um, you know, it's, it's fascinating that they went out and did this. They did it so quickly. Again, more answers will come on that today. It's funny. You mentioned the starting pitchers because the next question is about the starting pitchers from Bonnie Gagnon again. She gets love with two questions today, but she asked, why haven't the Red Sox signed any starters? I think they were trying. You know, I think they tried really, really hard to sign a couple guys early on, um, and it just didn't work out. You know, they were very interested in Zach Eflin. They offered him the same three-year, $40 million deal that he took from the Rays. He's just from Orlando, so he took that deal. Kind of a bad beat. Um they were very interested in Andrew Heaney as Alex Spear and I both reported during the winter meetings, you know, at lefty who'd been with the Dodgers last year, the Yankees and angels before, but really, really good advanced numbers. The Red Sox were willing to offer him a deal two years, way North of 30 million. And the Rangers offered him two for 25 and he's from Oklahoma and had a good relationship with their GM and wanted the fit. So he took a little bit, you know, less money. And we've seen that kind of time and time again, this winter where, you know, guys are willing to take um, either lesser money or fewer years to sign in a place where they're comfortable. Noah Syndergaard did it yesterday with the Dodgers. We saw Christian Vasquez do it, you know, with the the Twins over the Cubs, according to reports. You know, guys are, are picking comfort, which is, you know, says something about, you know, maybe the, the union is telling them like, all right, you can leave a few million dollars on the table now. Um, who's to say exactly why? Whatever it is, the Red Sox have been victims of that a couple times. Jen McCaffrey and the Athletic had something pretty interesting uh, Tuesday or Wednesday of this week where the Red Sox were really targeting starting pitching, targeting starting pitching, targeting starting pitching. And then when they lost out on, you know, Eflin and Heaney and maybe a couple other guys they were looking at, they decided, you know, let's let's kind of refocus here and uh, you really focus on the bullpen and build from the back. They obviously signed Kenley Jansen, signed Chris Martin, signed Jolie Rodriguez. And now, you know, all that makes it, you know, more likely than not that Tanner Houck and Gara Whitlock are going to be, you know, in the rotation uh, moving forward. I think they're still going to add a starter, you know, but interestingly, two of the top three or four guys available are guys that were with the Red Sox last year, Nate Evaldi, Michael Waka, another guy the Red Sox are frequently linked to and Corey Kluber. So, um, you know, there are uh, not that many options left. I think the more likely uh, path would be making a trade. Um, but, you know, who's uh, – I, I don't think the rotation mix is done at this point. I do think they've tried, and, and that's why once those things failed, they went to yet another plan B. It's kind of been the story of this offseason and went and decided to start adding to the bullpen. I don't know how this is happening so perfectly where you keep setting up the next question so well. This is a reliever question? It not not a reliever question. You said that they're most likely going to make a trade. Jeff Ajaris, I want to say it's pronounced, said, "What three teams do the Red Sox match up well with to make a trade?" Uh, that's a very tough question because I don't know 
as well as I used to the uh, rosters of every, every team. You know, I think there are some teams out there that, you know, just have pieces that make sense. The Marlins are one, whether it be Pablo Lopez or Trevor Rogers. Um, you know, I think Sean McAdam reported that Red Sox have also, you know, been interested in Garrett Cooper. Um, so there are some pieces there that I think make sense. And obviously, you know, the Marlins are kind of in a perpetual rebuild where they're always looking to make moves, looking to trade some pieces. The Diamondbacks, I think, make some sense. You know, they're a team that kind of um, a fringe uh, team. They were bad last year. They're looking to kind of build for the future a little bit. You know, they could trade you a Dalton Varsho or one of those guys. I think Corbin Carroll is off the market. But, you know, one of those young outfielders, they have a surplus and they're apparently looking to move them. Um, you know, I've seen, you know, rumors about you know, Pittsburgh, obviously, is a team that, you know, they have a couple pieces of Brian Reynolds, who has requested a trade. He's asked to get out of there. David Bednar, who's a star reliever that not many people know about. Those guys fit really well if you want to do a package. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think the Red Sox are going to trade Brian Bayo or Tristan Costas or any of those guys. I do think that they're going to be you know, willing to trade maybe Hauk, maybe Alex Verdugo, you know, if they're going to trade off the major league roster. And then, you know, a lot of the minor league depth they have, maybe Rafaela, maybe Nick York, you know, some of those guys that um, we've seen Valdez even, you know, in the last couple of years. So, um, you know, it's kind of all those those teams that usually are looking to to trade their players once they get expensive. I think Pittsburgh with Reynolds and Bedner is a particularly good fit. Um, but at the same time, Pittsburgh doesn't have as much leverage anymore because uh, Reynolds did request that trade. So the trade market really is not, you know, uh, heated up at all. I know Sean Murphy got traded from Oakland to Atlanta earlier in the week. That's about it. Um, Bloom said he's hopeful that it will start heating up and they can start, you know, really digging in. It seem, seems like, you know, as he said now time and time again, um, and you know, I think it's the reality with a free agent market that's been kind of picked over here. You know, the trade, the trade Avenue is the more likely one for the Red Sox at this point. More Sox 55 asked, do you think ownership is hiding and why, what are your thoughts on it? I know you have been trying to get them on record and it's not worked. What has changed that they won't speak? Yeah, this is uh, something that I I think that people are going to start thinking I'm obsessed with because we talked about it with Rob on this show the other day. I've tweeted about it a few times, talked about it on on Starting Nine and on Inside the Monster or whatever it's called now, the ITM podcast um, with, with Peralt and Capone the other day. I mean, it comes down to this in my mind. You know, the Red Sox continually say they're a public trust and that they owe the fans accountability and transparency. And then the people at the top of the organization don't provide that. And I think that's very, very interesting. Um, I think that it's hypocritical in a way. And, you know, there's always that Sam Kennedy coming out and saying there's a misperception here that the Red Sox ownership is not very involved. Well, a great way to quell that and a great way to make people think that they're involved is to have them answer questions. Uh, The reason behind it, you know, from what I understand, uh, John Henry just doesn't want to. He's not comfortable getting in front of the microphone, um, which is interesting because he, he did it for, you know, a very long time, you know, for while owning the team that ended about 2019 or 2020, where it was very, very rare to get him. Um, so I have not had much experience doing it since I've been on the beat since 2018. Look, you, you know, it's tough criticizing a guy for, he's not comfortable doing it. It's something he doesn't want to do, you know, like then I, I, I sympathize with that a little bit, but at the end of the day, it's his responsibility. I think he owes it to the fan base. So my campaign to get them to speak is never going to work. I don't think, um, but you know, still worth bringing up because, 
you know, when big things are happening, like the Bogarts thing, the team finishes last, people are questioning the direction, the commitment, all that type of stuff. You know, if you want to, you know, dispel some of the narratives, there's a very easy way to do that. Take accountability, be transparent. So far, they've shown no interest in doing that at all. So um, I think it's an interesting undercurrent for everything that's going on. I don't, I don't think they're going to sell the team or I don't think they're not involved. Like a lot of people guess, you know, but come out and tell us that, you know, um, that that's all we're asking. And it's not just a, you know, media member wanting a headline type of thing. I think, you know, I really do honestly think the fans, uh, earn it or own it. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the take on it. Yeah. Communication never hurts anyone. No, no. And they, uh, you know, they, it's just it, it, not talking leads to more questions, put it that way. Ethan Robitaille asked, how much do you work in the off season compared to the regular season? I know it might be a little different this off season, but I guess in a more general manner. Yeah. I was just thinking yesterday that previous off seasons, you know, I think my first one, um, it is really all, you know, based on what the team's doing, what the needs are what the um, moves are, that type of thing. Um, and it's really a case-by-case -case basis. My first offseason, 2018 into 19, they signed Steve Pierce. They re-signed Steve Pierce, and they re-signed Nate Evaldi, and that was it, and they brought back the same roster. And to tell you, know, we didn't have the podcast back then. I was not working very much that offseason. Um, I remember that. Um, you know, last offseason was, was obviously weird, too, because there was the lockout, so there wasn't much to do for two months in the middle of that. Um, we were trying to find up, find angles, but nobody from the team would talk and players wouldn't talk. So that made that a little bit difficult this off season. I think I'm paying for all that. Um, as we've talked about before, my partner here, Chris Smith is on paternity leave for a couple months. Very well deserved as he, um, takes care of his, his two kids under four. Um, and I know that his job is on a day-to-day -day basis harder than what I'm doing, but, um, it's been a lot, you know, because the Red Sox have been doing a lot, you know, just, we talked about, you know, last Wednesday, the craziness of that Kenley Jansen in the morning, Yoshida in the afternoon and the Bogarts news at night, um, mixed around a flight from the West coast. It's been, um, as busy as I can remember any off season. And, you know, this week Jansen press conference Tuesday and, you know, Yoshida press conference Thursday and, uh, you know, just a lot going on. Um, and even, you know, the moves they're not making, those are worth writing up and people are talking about it. So, you know, I always love the hot stove season. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting and different, you know, at least during the season, you can kind of know what every day brings, you know, here, you know, it's kind of like, I'm afraid to uh, do anything, honestly, because you never know when you're going to get kind of screwed by not being uh, available to write. And I always joke as soon as I, you know, commit to going to do something that is, um, you know, maybe on the more fun side that I'm just asking for the Red Sox to make a move. You know, I flew to, Charlotte for the ACC championship game to watch Carolina get their, their heads bashed in by Clemson last weekend or two weekends ago. And as soon as I sat down on the plane, Wi-Fi went away. They signed Chris Martin, uh, the reliever of course. Um, you know, I'm going to see them this weekend basketball play at, at Madison square garden against Ohio state. As soon as tip off happens, they're going to go, you know, sign Dansby Swanson or something like that. So that's always the risk you run. Um, this is, yeah, it's, it would be tough even, you know, the Red Sox have not been super busy, obviously, this offseason. They've done a few things, and there's been a lot of storylines. But um, the beat has been. There's been a lot for us to cover and a lot of availability, which is, you know, I guess better than the alternative, but makes for some long days, too. 
I learned recently that you used to live within like one to two minute walking distance from Fenway. So I think this next question will resonate well. Yeah. You and you'll be able to have a good perspective on it. Brian Palm asked the best food near Fenway. Yeah. Well, they have the best right down the street and right near my old building. Miss it dearly uh, is the best chain restaurant in America. And that is the yard house. It is exquisite. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of cheesecake factory people out there. That's fine. I think cheesecake factory is great. Get the same thing. The tomato basil pasta every time. Um, yard house. It's just, they always deliver, you know, they got the perfect amount of TVs. You can watch any game in there. Um, you know, it's sometimes a little dark the uh, for the ambiance, which, you know, it's fine. And, and the other ridiculous thing about it is that after Red Sox games, they card at the door, like there's some club. But once you get past that, once you get in, the food's great. They have any IPA you could possibly ask for on tap, which is, you know, a dream after covering a four hour ball game. Um, so, you know, that's I'm already making my plans after the Yoshida press conference today to be there. I know it's a it's a favorite of a lot of uh a lot of Red Sox writers and Red Sox people. I'll tell a quick yard house story. You can also become an intrepid reporter in there. Uh, one time this year, I'm not going to name the player, but one time this year, the Red Sox were going on a road trip. We did post game and I was not going on the road trip. I went to yard house with a couple other writers while we, while we were in there, a player who had been on the team as of an hour before when the series ended, walked into yard house. He had not been on the team plane and that made me think, okay, well, this guy's now sitting in the booth near me. There's definitely a roster move happening here. And as a result, I was able to break that roster move. So yeah, I mean, yard house talk about the complete package, the IPAs, the Caesar salad and breaking news all in one. I need to know off that. How often do you go to the yard house? Would you say? Oh, it's I, I try to go at least once a week, maybe twice a week, but off season it's harder. But today we make our triumphant return. So extend Rafael Devers is this person's Twitter handle. They mm-hmm. said your favorite hotel chain to stay in when you're on the road. That's I mean, that's just I, I'm going to this is turning into just like ads. You know, we're going to go yard house straight to the wonderful people at Marriott. Um you know, that is a, a, a probably the, the worst kept secret in, in baseball writing. Every one of us basically in the BBWAA, like everybody is a Marriott diehard, the rewards program, the whole nine yards. I mean, that's not just you staying at, you know, your full service Marriott's. There are 30 chains between the Renaissance and Residence Inn and Courtyard and Weston, uh, you know, the Ritz, even though it's not really part of the package for me. Um you know, there's a lot of different places that are the W, the Moxie. I mean, I could go on and on naming brands all day. Um, the rewards program is great. They have partnerships with, with MLB, um, you know, 24-hour check-in, 24-hour checkout. They're just The list goes on and on. So I am as big of a Bond Boy guy as you possibly can get. We are inching very, very close to my 75 nights for 2022, which gets me back to Titanium Elite. Um, the rewards are great. I mean, so Marriott and Yard House, you can't beat it. We got to get some Marriott and Yard House sponsorships on this. I know they. I I'm doing it for them for free, and we get to we get to stop that. Actually, and paying them, pay that them a lot of money. So, one last question. This one is actually from me. Okay. I want to since you've been on 
the Red Sox be in 2018. Do you have one story that stands out to you as the favorite story you ever wrote? Uh, favorite story I ever wrote uh, the Jaron Duran story about mental health from the, uh, from August from this year. And I know we talked about the process behind that on the show back then, you know, that was the one I think I spent you know the most time on just because it was obviously, um, you know, a, a delicate topic. And, um, you know, again, all credit goes to Jaron for opening up and all that type of stuff. So that's probably my favorite just because, you know, it took so much effort behind the scenes and it took so much care to, you know, tell it the right way. Um, I will say, you know, of, of all the pieces of news that have broken, of all the things that have happened at different times, you know, as we're taking off on our red eye last week from San Diego to Boston and Xander Bogarts to the Padres breaks, that was one of the most shocking moments I can remember. You know, like I, you know, what I said out loud on that plane, we'd have to put the explicit tag on the pod if I repeated it here. But, um, you know, just that scene of, all right, we're leaving San Diego and, uh, all of a sudden, you know, Heyman tweets out Bogarts to Padres, 11 for 280, done deal. And like you think about, you know, our whole lives basically on the beat have been dominated by Bogarts questions. You know, last time we did this, it was all Bogarts questions. Um, I always thought he'd come back and, and then it ends up not happening. So uh, kind of crazy timing, but, you know, a crazier, you know, contract and a crazier move for the Padres. So, um, you know, that that that's probably the biggest you know holy crap for lack of a better term uh moment that we've had i think just because it came out of pretty much nowhere um you know and that's there's a lot that's happened you know i always tell people like you know for a young reporter this has been the greatest crash course because there's never been a dull moment you know in 18 they won the world series and i followed that obviously the whole year and was with the team when they won in, the, in LA and, you know, in the champagne celebration and saw what it looks like when it's absolutely perfect and firing on all cylinders in 19, they run into the adversity. They fired Dombrowski. Obviously the Cora scandal happens. He gets let go. COVID comes in. They trade Mookie. We have the Renicky era, another bad team in 2020 Dombrowski out bloom in, um, you know, in 19 and then, you know, the lockout, I mean, another last place team and ALCS run and now, you know, another generational talent and Bogarts leaving. I mean, I've really, you know, talk about seen it all um, in, in five years, but I think this one stands out as like, wow, that I did not see that coming. Um, and so when they trade for Otani in a couple of days, maybe it'll get beat out. But for now, that's what I got. <laughs> that's, that's all the questions. Good. Well, thanks to Twitter for, uh, for providing them.